0: Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweil as he continues his sermon series in James. If you would like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Father, you are a good and merciful God. Lord, we thank you for your grace that you have showered upon us in Christ. Thank you for our identity because of what you've done for us on the cross. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for separating our sins as far as the east is from the west. Thank you that you have provided the way, that you are the truth. A personal relationship through you is the way to life. God, we, uh, we confess that we have all lived in ways that um, have not pleased You and and gone our own selfish way, Lord, we pray that You would help us to um, identify, to see those areas, to confess, and to repent of them, and and to restore us to a good relationship with You, Lord, and um, we pray that we would be people who are authentic in our faith, uh, living it out, not just knowing the truth but applying it, living it. Help us to be not merely hearers but doers of the Word. Help us to be quick to hear, uh, slow to speak, and slow to anger as we look at this, this great letter that you've given to us through James. Draw us closer in now to your presence and, and your truth. Convict us where we need conviction. Encourage us where we need encouragement, Lord, and, uh, and I just pray for attentiveness and um, just a willing and an open heart this morning for all of us, including myself. And we ask all these things to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen. One of my—it's been a while since Ridley Scott's *Gladiator* was directed. It's probably one of my all-time favorite movies, and one of the reasons why I like *Gladiator* it's kind of one of those guys movies. But uh, I think I can reference it here because it's so familiar to us and, and such a good movie. One of the reasons why I like it is just because it, it depicts so much of the life of Christ. You've got a uh, a general, one of the most powerful men in the empire, who uh, is usurped of his authority. He gives it over. He becomes a slave. He becomes not only a slave, but even further down on the slave market, he becomes a gladiator. And he defies an emperor. And, and the story is just a, a great depiction of, of Christ, who was uh, the highest, the most glorious, left the glories above to come down to become a slave and to a, as a servant and to die for us on the cross. But… There's one scene in, in Gladiator that, as I was reading through James 2, I was thinking about this and how to introduce the sermon that really came to my mind. Um, there's, a, there's a battle in, that goes on in this movie between the gladiator who's played, um, his, his name is, um, gosh, Maximus, Maximus, Maximus. His name is Maximus, and, and he's in, in this duel in the arena, in the Colosseum in Rome that's going to be a fight to the death and he has to take on this other gladiator, whoever wins that battle is going to basically keep his life. And so the evil emperor Commodus arranges it so that Maximus is, is certainly going to be the one that is going to meet his death in the arena. But lo and behold, he, he finds the strength, he, he digs down deep, he makes it, and he defeats his enemy. And as he's standing over him, waiting for the Caesar to, to give him the okay to deliver the death blow. He looks to him, and he asks him, do you want me to take this man's life or not? And the powerful Caesar gives the thumbs down, and he says, take his life. And as he's, as he's standing above this guy with the ax in his hand, ready to swing the death blow, instead, he tosses it to the side in the dirt, and the crowd goes deafly silent. They realize that Maximus, the gladiator, just defied the emperor, and because of that, he's probably gonna lose his life himself, and as the, as the crowd is just silent, looking on, waiting to see what happens, there's this voice that comes from the stands, just faintly and clearly, Maximus, Maximus the Merciful. You guys remember it. And all the crowd goes wild, and they cheer him because even though he could have taken life in that moment, he chose mercy instead. In that moment in the movie, mercy triumphed over judgment, and that's exactly what we're going to read about here in James, chapter two this morning. Uh, Matt Mayer has a song. Listen, this is a, this sermon this morning. I'm just summarize it in two quick sentences. God has shown us all through Christ the depths of his mercy and grace in giving us everlasting life and sending Jesus to die for us. Who are we to withhold mercy from other people? We have been recipients of mercy, and as recipients, as authentic Christians, we have a responsibility to show mercy to the least deserving. Matt Marr has a a great song. It's called Your Grace is Enough, and I was listening to it a lot this weekend. He says, Great is your faithfulness, O God, You wrestle with the sinner's restless heart. And then here's the phrase. He says, you lead us by still waters into mercy. The truth of the gospel is that God, through Jesus Christ and his death for us on the cross, leads us by still waters into this this realm, this status of mercy, of mercy from the Almighty Father above through Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, we read about it. Ephesians 2, if you have found that chapter, look down at verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you walked once walked following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, all of us. When we come into this world, because of our human nature, our children of wrath, all of us are guilty before God. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love in which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Mercy to the least deserving is, is well depicted in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 and 28. Consider your calling, my brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to, sh- to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. How can God choose the poor and the weak over the strong and the significant? Because mercy triumphs over judgment. How can we have an almighty God who looks down upon us in our plight, helpless before God in sin, destined for destruction, and give us life instead simply by trusting in Him? Because mercy triumphs over judgment. At the end of the day, if there's any question, if there's any gray area, we are going to err on the side of grace and mercy, because all of us have received an abundance of grace and mercy in the gospel from Christ. This morning, we're going to continue in our sermon series through the book of James. I've called the series, Authentic Faith. And I want you to remember, as we were going through this, that James 1.19 is our theme verse. It shows us the structure. It gives us the path that James is about to take as he takes us through this entire letter. And if you want to memorize one verse in the book of James, if you want to keep track with where we're going, James 1.19 is the verse to pay attention to. It says this, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person do three things. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So from chapter 1, Verse 21, all the way through the end of chapter 1, James first told us that authentic Christians accept the word humbly. We are people who approach and receive God's word, his implanted word within us, and we live it out. We are not just hearers, but we are also doers of the word. Now, in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, he's going to ask us to apply the word mercifully. Apply the word to the poor, to the needy, and to the weak. In society. You might be saying, hold on, Jared, I know you've got a master's degree from Dallas Seminary. You know great and wise things that other people just don't know. But wait a second, really quick. Are you telling me, listen, listening, opening our ears, being quick to listen is a lot different than applying, right? Are you telling me that listening is the same as applying the Word of God? Should we be Doing one before the other, should one take precedence? What if I struggle with something? Is listening the same as applying? And the answer is yes and no. On the one hand, in order to apply the truth, you've got to know the truth. That comes first, and there's not knowledge and understanding that's there. On the other hand, hearing and obeying are so connected in Scripture that if you fail to do one, it is inevitable that you have failed to do the other. That the person who hasn't obeyed the word, that we look back and we say, this person hasn't heard it in the first place. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 3 at the beginning here. Pay attention, listen, Israel, and be careful to do this. The insinuation here is that if you're not careful to do this, you haven't paid close enough attention. And so pay attention. Or Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the Hebrew Shema. Hear, oh, hear, Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul. In fact, that is one of the verses that is in our prayer calendar for this morning. If you haven't gone out to the lobby, grab one of those prayer calendars. It comes right out of Mark chapter 12. This verse right here Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. The person who hears listens to the Word is the person who loves the Lord with all heart, mind, and soul. And so, so Howard Hendricks, one of my favorite professors at Dallas Seminary, here's what he used to say, he called him prof, he said, biblically speaking, to hear and not to do is not to hear at all when you think about it in Scripture. Authentic Christians, Hendricks would say, never traffic in unpracticed truth. Authentic Christians never traffic in unpracticed truth. I want you to hold on to that. We're going to come back to it in the application part. James says that an essential aspect of being quick to hear is applying the word mercifully to the least deserving. And so you're going to see three things in our outline as we go through this morning. I've highlighted them above for you. Number 1, James tells us to choose mercy over discrimination, verses 1 through 4. Choose mercy over exploitation, verses 5 through 11, and mercy over condemnation, verses 12 and 13. To apply the word mercifully, we're going to have to choose mercy over discrimination, exploitation, and condemnation. Here's the thesis right off the bat. Those who call themselves Christians should be just as eager to give mercy as you were to receive it from God. We should be just as eager to give and to show mercy as we were to receive it from God through Christ. Number one, choose mercy over discrimination. Flip over to James chapter 2 if you're still in Ephesians there. I'm going to read the first four verses. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, in this letter so far, we've been talking about how James is tough, right? James is the guy who steps on our toes. We wear our steel-toed boots, as Travis told us to last week when we read this book. He, he tells us the hard thing, and he lets the chips fall where they may. He doesn't pull his punches. He's stepping on our toes. He calls a spade a spade. He doesn't even beat around the bush. He just goes right for the jugular, and he shocks us. And he says, authentic Christians don't just talk a good game. They walk a good game. But I want you to notice something in how this passage starts in James chapter 2. It's something that we've seen already in this book, but I haven't highlighted it. Very first words in verse verse 1, look how James addresses his audience. He calls them what? My brothers. Sixteen times in five chapters, James is going to call his audience brothers and sisters in Christ or beloved brothers. And he includes an emphasis in here. He he brings us into this corporate idea of family. There's, There's two things that he's doing. Number one, he's including himself in his admonitions. James is a preacher who preaches to his own heart before he preaches to everybody else's. He's in this just as much as we are with his admonitions. But number two, he brings a family dynamic into this. He brings a close-knit relationship corporately with these local churches to say, we've got to do this together. I've got to do this. I need your help to do this. James is tough. Yes, he is tough, but he is also tender. He's got the courage to say the difficult thing. He also has the compassion to come alongside, and you really see a pastor's heart here in James chapter 2 and all throughout this letter. But here's his thesis. We see it right, right away in verse 1. Did you read through it again? and uh, we'll summarize it. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. It is incompatible to call yourself a Christian and to be partial in your relationships, to show favoritism in your relationships. Verse 1 is very clear. The command is very clear. Show no partiality. Your text might say favoritism, prejudices, or something of the accord. This is a very dynamic, word in the Greek. It is loaded. Literally, we would say this, my brothers receive no one according to their face. He's talking about outward appearances. It's incompatible for a person to be a Christian and judge based on outward appearances too quickly and make judgment calls. He's not just talking about judging people on the outside. He's also talking about judging people's Mm -hmm. motives their desires, and even their hearts. So 1 Samuel chapter 16 is, a, is an interesting chapter. This is the chapter where prophet Samuel goes and he finds David, right? The least significant of all the brothers in the family of Jesse. And in that, at the end of chapter 16, at the end of verse 7, it says this, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That is something that neither me or you, or anybody else in this room can fully do. None of us can see to the heart. One of the main reasons that we avoid favoritism and partiality and don't discriminate against any single person is because you and I cannot judge the heart. We can't see the heart. God, in His Word, is the only one who can rightly, correctly, and fully understand what's going on inside of a person. So so we limit ourselves, we hold ourselves back from judging based on what we see on the outside, and we engage in spiritual discipleship that's more concerned about what's on the inside. It's also interesting how he refers to Jesus in verse 1. Have you seen this? At the end of the verse, hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Your translation might say something completely different there. Literally, when you read that verse, that verse, we should say something like this: Hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The glory at the end. It doesn't make sense when you read it just with a straightforward, wooden translation. Glory in the Bible means uh, doxa is a doxology. When you get to the Greek, the Hebrew is kavod, and it means to be heavy, weighty, or even significant. Uh, if something is, is glorious, it's beautiful. It's more significant than anything else that you have in your life that is insignificant compared to its glory. Now, there's two ways you can interpret this. Either James is, is calling God, it's, he's using it as a description for God to say, God is the glorious Lord, or like the ESV has it here, the Lord of glory. Or it's appositional, meaning that glory itself is being used as a title for God, You would capitalize the G. Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. Whatever the translation, interpretation you choose, here's what James is doing. He is appealing to one of the highest and most consuming attributes of God. He's he's appealing to the glory of the Lord. That thing about him that makes him more significant than any other thing in this world. He is the one uncreated thing, he is the one uncreated person, he is the one that holds glory. What James is is telling us and he's beckoning us to do is we don't show partiality, we don't show favoritism, because we have a Lord of glory that is the most significant, the most weighty relationship that we can have in our life. And, And he says, you're going to be judged, and I don't want you to do it. You can't live the Christian life properly by showing favoritism. As Jesus often did, James gives us a short parable. He talks about two men and two seats. Uh, rich man who's described as having gold, literally golden fingers. This is the one time that that phrase, gold fingers, appears in the text. In fact, some people think that James created this word. It wasn't used in the Greek. Nobody can find it before this. It's a hot The only time it happens in the, in the New Testament. This man, who literally has golden fingers, comes into the congregation with resplendent, luxurious clothing. This is, a, this is a person who is undoubtedly, without a question, drawing attention to himself. He wants to stand out, and he wants to see that he's standing out and making a difference from every other person that's there. And he's compared to a poor man who's in shabby clothes, and that's the, that's the strongest word we have for poor in the New Testament. Usually when you read it, it's it's translated something like destitute. You could translate extreme poverty. The comparison between these two men could not be greater. The wealthy man is is ushered into a significant seat in the synagogue. The poor man is taken to a a place of shame and dishonor. And James makes this point with a rhetorical question. It affirms a… demands an affirmative answer as you read it. Verse 4, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I want you to skip over to James chapter 4. Look at verse 12. James writes later on in this book, chapter 4, verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor. As babies, we sit in high chairs. When we get older as adults, we're probably going to sit in an office chair at some point in time. James tells us clearly and emphatically there is one chair that we must avoid. We can never take up God's chair. We can never become judge, and so we avoid it at all costs. But behind this, uh, this rhetorical question, James is getting to the root of all sin. He's taking this even a step further because any time that you and I sin, any time that we do something that uh, offends an almighty God, we go our own way, we, in that step, we, in that instance, we become judge of our own lives. We become the ones that are the arbiters over truth, over our feelings, over whatever has happened to us or whatever is happening in us. All sin is a desperate attempt for us to take up the chair of God, to become judge. James is saying you cannot do that as an authentic Christian. Avoid God's chair at all costs, and don't don't discriminate. Choose mercy over discrimination. Number two in the text, choose mercy over exploitation. Mercy over exploitation. Look down at verse 5, James chapter 2. Listen, my beloved brothers. Again, you've got that Uh, address there. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law yet fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, "Do not commit adultery," has said, "Do not murder." And if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. I want you to just stop and and consider the beginning here. This is where I want to emphasize this section is just verse five of this text. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? God is on the side of the poor in the Bible. It is a kingdom ethic that goes beyond everything that our world functions in. We are after status, significance, wealth, and social structures. God is after the lowest of the low. God is, has chosen the poor In this world. And the reason is is because of their responsiveness to the gospel. Now, contextually, there's something very significant happening here in the first century that James is, is dealing with. He's talking about a specific cultural situation, but across cultures and beyond this, when we take a step back, we see that from the Old Testament Genesis all the way through Revelation, that God has a specific love and interest in a chosen nature for the poor. The reason for that is is because all of us, apart from Christ, are poor. We're all poor in spirit. As it says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. Another reason for that is because if if you go to a poor person, if you go to the insignificant and those who are in the margins of society, and you tell them the truth of the gospel, and you say that there's actually hope beyond this world, there's something different in Jesus, there's everlasting life here. A poor person and a marginalized person is is probably going to be much more interested in perking their ears and paying attention to that than a person of of wealth and significance who has a hard time seeing their need for God. God has, has chosen the poor. It's not saying that, he's not saying here that the rich are incapable. He hasn't chosen the rich too. He's saying that the poor respond to the gospel because they more readily see their need for it. They don't find a place in this world. They have a deeper hope that goes beyond things that the people who have things and, and the wealthy just don't experience it at that level. The world says, you know, think about this just a little bit. You might be religious. You might be even a moral person in life. But if you are living your life apart from the gospel and apart from the grace of Christ, you are no different than the world lives their life. In the world, here's what you're going to hear. The world will tell you, if you try hard enough, dig deep, save your money, make good choices, you're just going to be fine in life. You're going to do okay. The gospel says if you want to be right with God, you need to start collecting welfare. You need to realize your total bankruptcy because of sin in your life. You need to go down to the dregs. And see that at the bottom there is only one other place to go, and that is up. And we have to be humbled and broken because of it. To be poor in the Bible, it's not just a material condition, it's a spiritual condition. James is, is referencing, he's talking about that, certainly, but he's also talking about a ministry of mercy to the materially poor, insignificant, and to the needy. Martin Luther King um, Jr., his, his whole Ministry, his whole approach to dealing with racism in the South and everything that he did through the civil rights movement. He wasn't trying to convert people to be Christians. He was talking to Christians and telling them to be authentic Christians. He was telling them, if you are an authentic Christian, here's what you're going to do you're going to have a concern for the marginalized, for the dregs, for the people that are poor and the insignificant in society. Christians, I'm calling you to be a Christian is what He said. James is saying the same thing here. This is not just faith. This is authentic faith, and there are two marks of every authentic Christian. Jesus gets down to it when He was asked about it. What is the most important law in all of the commandments? The test from the lawyer, and He said what? The first is this. The greatest commandment is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Proverbs 17 verse 5 says this. Those who mock the poor demonstrate contempt for their maker. God chooses the poor. And every other person who is truly connected with God, listen, Do you want to know if you're a Pharisee and religious or if you're an authentic Christian? Here's what James is going to tell you. How do you treat the poor? How do you treat the needy? What's your heart like for the insignificant and the marginalized? Faith is a gift. It is free, and it comes by faith alone only, but but faith works itself out. And how we treat the poor in society. Number one, authentic Christians choose mercy over discrimination. Number two, mercy over exploitation. Number three, they choose mercy over condemnation. Just look at the last two verses, verse 12 and 13 here. James says, so speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. This is an indictment. I think, in verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to those who have shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is a a very rich and nuanced word, not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. I want to just give you three or four characteristics of mercy and what this means. First, mercy in the Bible always stems from the character of God. Jesus made mercy an essential ingredient to His greatest sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, referenced before when He said, Blessed are those, are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy first stems from God's character. It's who He is, it's what He shows to the least deserving. But second, mercy isn't primarily an emotion as much as it is an action, Mercy isn't primarily an emotion as much as it is an action. Mercy is an action taken by the strong for the weak, the rich for the poor, the insider toward the outsider. Mercy is one of those things that has to have movement to it. We would read it in the active voice, not the passive voice, to show mercy. third, mercy is the foundation for forgiveness. Think about it, anyone who has really wronged you, if there's no mercy, There's no forgiveness. Anybody who has really done something to offend you, you will never be able to forgive that person if you don't show mercy to them, if you don't decide that you in your heart are going to give to them something that they themselves don't deserve and can't earn. If we're going to define mercy, we take it back to a general meaning. We would start with the character of God, but we would also talk about a a special and a technical meaning of mercy. Mercy. Mercy is just not these, these three things that I'm putting up here on the, on the screen. Mercy in the Bible, when you look at it, it actually means to go and to take care specifically of the poor and the marginalized. There's a, there's a mercy that's being addressed for the ministry of a deacon in the New Testament, that we are ministers of mercy, serving the least deserving and those who cannot help themselves. And it's very technical and specific in some contexts where you read about it. Uh, One of my favorite definitions for mercy is this. Mercy is God's chief disposition towards sinful man, spawned by his love, which exerts his power to bring sinful man back to himself. Mercy from God is never deserved and is always generated by his character and not man's. Let me read that again. Mercy is God's chief disposition towards sinful man. It's spawned by his love, which exerts his power to bring sinful man back to himself. Mercy from God is never deserved and is always generated by his character and not man's character. James chapter two, at the end of this paragraph, there's a, there's a short, pithy statement that makes it so powerful and memorable. He says, mercy triumphs over judgment. That word from triumph there is taken from the military world. It recalls a, a military conquering or a military victory. In other words, mercy is stronger Mercy is more powerful. Judgment will never be able to stand to the depths, to the significance, and to the power of mercy. No matter what the condemnation that we have, no matter the sins that we have committed, mercy triumphs over judgment every time. There is no question about it. Grace and mercy wins at the end of the day. And that's good news for you and for me, because we so desperately need it. A couple points of application to start, or to finish. Excuse me. (laughs) Here we're just going to start all over. Authentic Christians never graduate from the school of discipleship. Authentic Christians never graduate from the School of Discipleship. So uh, one of the quotes I mentioned from Howard Hendricks, he says, never traffic in unpracticed truth. If you're anything like me, you're probably one who's trafficked in unpracticed truth. And you guys have sin struggles in your life? If you're anything like me, you've confessed sins even this week, maybe even this morning. That you've committed since the time that you woke up in the morning. You will at times feel like almost on a daily basis, basis you are trafficking in unpracticed truth. Every act of sin is an act of, of disobedience. Every act of sin is a failure to listen, to be quick to listen. That should make us want to perfect the art of listening in our life. It should also steer us down a, a very clear and narrow path Of grace and mercy. There is only one person who never trafficked in unpracticed truth perfectly. That's Jesus. There's only one person who ever lived who was always 100% quick to hear and to follow the will of God. James is demanding a lot of us as Christians, but all of us look at this text and we all say, I have shown favoritism. I have shown partiality. I have not been quick to listen. I have been quick to to sin. I've been quick to anger instead. The command that James gives us in this whole section is, is to be quick to hear, and he commands us because there's always going to be a possibility that we won't be. We're going to struggle to listen. To that point, I would say we will never graduate from the school of discipleship. When we realize when we fail in those areas, our responsibility is to confess those sin and ask God sins and ask God for forgiveness, and they'll restore us if we're truly repentant at our heart. But I want you to see that in this command, we will be asked to do something for the rest of our earthly lives. We are imperfect at it, and so we stand and we look and we judge people with grace and mercy because we so desperately need it on a daily basis. Number two, authentic Christians display an endless supply of mercy because we've received an endless supply. Authentic Christians display and show an endless supply of mercy because we ourselves have received an endless supply from Christ. It's, it's really interesting in the Old Testament and Exodus. Right after the, old, the uh, Ten Commandments are given, Exodus chapter 20, you'll see them listed there. There's some commands that follow that. But once you get to Exodus chapter 21, there's a, a huge long section, almost goes through the entire rest of that chapter, about how to treat the slaves among you and the servants. There's a lot of laws in the Old Testament about certain ways that God calls us to treat a slave and to treat a servant. And the refrain that's repeated throughout that, I find it really interesting. It's, it's probably more… Um, is deeper functioning in the in the culture and society at that time than it is in our society today. The refrain that's repeated throughout that is, is: "There's a way to treat slaves because you yourselves were slaves in Egypt, where I called you with my grace and with my mercy." Authentic Christians don't show mercy because we're commanded to do it. Although that's true, we don't show it because God demands social justice. From us as Christian, although that's true. We don't show mercy because it's a moral obligation. That's also true. We don't show mercy to be a better person, but showing mercy will make us better people. We show mercy because God has shown great mercy to us. And look no further than Jesus. The phrase at the beginning of verse one in chapter two, it says Do not receive a person according to their face. The most beautiful and the most glorious person who ever walked this earth was Jesus. In fact, he was the glorious face of God. The glory of God tabernacled among us through the person of Christ. Turn back to Isaiah 53, and I'll, I'll get it together. You can um, lose your place there in James. We're, we're done in James chapter 2. But I want you to see this verse in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 3, he was, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom med, men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. The most beautiful, the most glorious God was shamed on the cross so horrifically that men could literally not look upon his face. He had no beauty that we would desire him. He had nothing in him that men would look at and say, I desire to be like that person, Jesus. God came to the earth and became the most ugly, the most poor, and the most shamed man on the cross of Calvary so that we could then receive his perfect beauty and his perfect glory. The perfect glory of God, the most beautiful manifestation of it, was in a person, in Jesus. And it was marred and torn to such an extent that it was beaten and ugly to the the state that nobody could look upon it, that nobody wanted to look upon it. Do you realize that he became poor so that we might become rich? that he became lowly so that he could raise us to the heights. Show mercy, because you have received it through Christ. Let's pray, and I'm going to ask the deacons to, and the elders to go back to distribute the Lord's Supper here. Father in heaven, thank you for um, just these, these admonitions in James chapter. Chapter 2 here, um, thank You for Your mercy, and we ask for more mercy, uh, for we are sinners. We don't deserve it, Lord, and You lavish it, lavish upon it in Christ. Um, God, Your Word says You have rained grace down upon us. We thank You for Your mercy. We desperately need it. Lord, as we uh, uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper now, I pray that our hearts and our affections would be drawn to the cross of Calvary to celebrate the unity that we have because of the gospel. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.